So China, the EU and the US are collectively responsible for around 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions. The EU plans to cut emissions by at least 55% by 2030 and it aims to become the world's first climate neutral continent. Last year, China promised to end its contribution uh, to global heating and achieve carbon neutrality by 2060, a huge move for global climate action. And President Biden has recently fulfilled his pledge to rejoin the Paris Agreement and he set a target of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. By cooperating closely, China, the EU and the US could not only reach their climate targets faster, but they could help other countries uh, do the same. So in this uh, Euractive virtual conference, we'll ask uh, how China, the EU and the US can work together to drive the global fight against climate change and could COP26 be a game changer. Our panel today, uh, we have uh, Jacob Worksman, he's the Principal Advisor for International Aspects of EU Climate Policy at DG Klima at the European Commission. Uh, Henrik uh, Han, he's a member of the European Parliament, member the ITRA committee and the delegation to the US, the delegation to China and for the European Parliament. Uh, Yi Qi, he's the director of the Institute for Public Policy at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. We also have uh, Zhang Zilang, he's the director of Institute of Energy, Environment and Economy at the uh, Tsinghua University. And we have Wendell Trio, director of Climate Action Network Europe. And we have Irina Kostova, researcher on energy resources and climate change at SEPS. Great to have you all with us uh, this morning. Uh, I'm going to give you about 60 seconds or so uh, just for your opening uh, remarks and uh, then we'll uh, start our conversations. Well, Jacob, do you want to kick off? 60 seconds. Brian, see whether I can do justice to this very important topic in such a, a short uh, time frame. Um, but let me say that having having followed the climate negotiations for, for almost 30 years now, I think it's fair to say that it's the first time where these three very important parties are actually vying for the mantle of leadership in terms of taking action on climate change, both through the support for the multilateral process, the negotiations under the Paris Agreement, but also in terms of, of their domestic policies. So I think that's a very good space to be in. Um, however, while each of these parties is committed to making climate central to their diplomatic relations, I think we have to recognize that we're, we're navigating some pretty tricky waters as well in that uh, re relationship in terms of um, uh, our willingness to cooperate on human rights, uh, on trade and on security. But on climate, I think there's a, a great potential to cooperate as well as to compete in terms of, of shaping the, the net zero future that we've committed to uh, in the area of renewable energy, uh, new technologies such as hydrogen, electric vehicles, um, batteries, etc. Uh, and that we are our key providers of, of policies, of standards, uh, but also development cooperation and investment around the world in these areas. And so the, the potential is indeed very, very significant. Um, what does leadership look like to the EU? What are our expectations of, of China and of the United States uh, on the road to Glasgow and beyond? Happy to get into that in more detail in our conversation. But essentially, we're asking of them uh, the same things that we're asking of ourselves as the European Union, which is a, a clear commitment to net zero emissions by mid-century, which is consistent with what Paris uh, Agreement commits ourselves to, um, near-term targets that are aligned with that net zero path, uh, and clear, credible policies that will help us uh, to get there. Um, and this includes, for example, the alignment of our finance, both domestically and internationally, uh, to the, the phasing out of activities such as, uh, as coal production uh, and, and consumption. We are also looking for international support 
from the EU, from the US, uh, from China and to other partners for the completion of the Paris rulebook, which is on the negotiating table between now and Glasgow that will guide us uh, towards achieving these targets in a transparent uh, and accountable way. So let me stop there. Looking forward to hearing from the rest of the panel and from the conversation that follows. Great opening uh, summary. Thank you so much, Jacob. Uh, Henrik, over to you. Thank you very much for inviting me to this interesting debate. So indeed, China, the US and the EU are responsible for around 40 or 50 for 45 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, according to various sources and consume nearly half of the world's energy. So political decisions made in Beijing, Washington and Brussels have significant implications for the world's climate and energy security. And the EU, US and China are at odds with human rights aspects like the treatment of the Uyghurs with trade issues and security aspects in the South China Sea. However, on climate, they should cooperate. So China is responsible for 27% of the world's greenhouse gases in 2019, the, the, the US 11% and the EU for 6.6% uh, to a recent study by the Rhodium Group, and climate neutrality would be indeed a huge step for China, which is currently heavily reliant on coal power and running more than half the world's capacity of coal plants. Coal-fired power accounts for 60% of China's energy mix, and coal production has been growing for years, even increasing in the corona year 2020. So China also finances coal-fired power plants in the rest of the world as part of its Silk Road initiatives. And additionally, China invests billions in renewable energies to be less dependent from imports and to cover the increasing demand. But some of these investments are not efficient enough because of lacking power grids transporting this energy to consumers. So let's take a look uh, to the U.S. President Biden's election offered a clear opportunity to put the U U.S. back at the heart of international climate institutions and processes after Trump's disastrous climate policy. And the U.S. position we can see now shows that the U.S. is about leaving the fossil stone age, referring to European deal to make the U.S. climate neutral before 2050 at the latest. And Biden promised millions of jobs building up a clean energy industry. Biden's stimulus package includes massive investments in renewable energy and infrastructure, six times more than Germany, interestingly. But what they do not have yet in the U.S. is a modern power grip as a precondition for an effective power supply without fossil fuels. So let's take a look on Europe. So Europe is on its road for a fossil fuel-free future to become climate neutral as well at 2050 at the latest. And with the Green Deal as its center of future legislative measures, their investments as well as like the trust transition mechanism to leave no one behind in Europe, regions heavily affected by this transformation process. So there's much to do in Europe, including the acceleration of renewable energy capacities and the modernization of its power grips. And on this road, the Commission will publish soon the Fit for 55 package to start the detailed legislative work that is necessary for that. So to sum up, 2021 could mark a shift in the global approach to the climate crisis and boost cooperative climate diplomacy. And we are observing very interesting dynamics. Climate change and environmental protection have moved from the periphery of international relations and geopolitics to center stage as they're increasingly recognized as threatening economic stability and societal well-being. 
So in the meantime, there's a broad understanding that climate protection requires global action and real world action needs cooperation, competition and consistency. So thank you very much and looking forward to our discussion. Thank you so much. Yiki, over to you. To answer your question, I think China definitely has the political will to uh, cooperate. And uh, if uh, we cannot cooperate, and uh, we'll leave the world uh, anyway. So last year, September 22nd, when uh, uh, President Xi made the announcement that China will achieve the uh, carbon peak before 2030 instead of around 2030, and to achieve carbon neutrality by 20, 2060. So uh, everyone agrees that was a major boost for climate change uh, uh, endeavor. You know, we can recall before uh, that day, and the entire world almost forgot that there is a, such a thing as a climate change threat. And after that, everything changed. Everything changed. We have seen one after another, the, uh, every country now is coming to agree on carbon neutrality. I think the Glasgow is a really a major opportunity. If we can actually reach the consensus on carbon, carbon neutrality. And, uh, you know, for the last 30 years, the, the developed world has basically failed the entire world by not meeting the common but differentiated responsibility. But now that type would still hear finger pointing the, uh, uh, you know, even today, this kind of thing. I, I think the, uh, that kind of argument, that kind of mentality is totally outdated. We need to look forward and uh, we need to work together. And it's not always easy. It's not always easy. You, you know, you talk about coal. And I just want to point out that, you know, I have a paper couple of years ago and pointed out 2013 was the peak for the coal consumption here in China. And for the last uh, several years, we have never seen a, never seen the coal just go back to the level of 2013. Why? Because the substitution of coal by clean energy is just going at such a rate never seen in the entire world. I think this is the kind of progress we need to address the climate change challenge. And we need to work together toward a bigger goal. Over to you. And I can't hear you at the moment. Zhang Zilang, can, can you hear us? Can you speak? Yeah, okay. yeah sure. No, sure. Just a, a quick introduction. Thank you. OK. So um, the first, I uh, fully agree with the Professor Xi about uh, China. China has a political will to cooperate with uh, the U.S. and the EU to address climate change issues. So I, so my, according to my observation, so now China benefits has benefited a lot. So in the past, in terms of the collaboration, so in the for the for the for the, the technology for the low carbon technology development and the de development and also for the policy uh, formulation. So and uh, and 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 right now, so for uh, and right, for example, the solar solar TV and the wind turbine technology is mostly uh, originated. So in, in the U.S. and the EU and the transport to China, after re innovation and uh, and also China become a major supplier of the solar TV, solar panels and the wind turbines in the world, including to the EU and the U.S. So I think 
they also need a, a collaboration so, so as, uh, on this. And, uh, and, and also, I think, so for example, China is building its national emission trading program. So we, we also learn a lot from the EU, and the EU also provides support so for the capacity building and, and, and also uh, the, the, and also for uh, the, some very technical, uh, how to say, uh, design so issues for the EIS. So I, 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 and, 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 and also I think now the, 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 the political will is still there because now we also need China and the US and the EU work together to, to, to help other developing nations, other developing nations to address the climate change. Okay. We'll address some of those uh, points in terms of capacity building, specifically in a few minutes as well. Evendel Tree, over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for giving this opportunity. Um, to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement's objective to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, we will need a massive transformation of our economies. And obviously, China, the US and the EU can play an important role in getting us there. Um, First of all, um, they can do that by taking sufficient action at home and by being um, kind of a leader um, of what uh, kind of policies are being established. And while we've seen a number of progresses in all three countries, we are unfortunately not yet on track um, of that 1.5 degrees pathways. And we will need to do more in all three of these countries as well as in all other countries of the world, but definitely in these three countries as the biggest emitters of the world, uh, because recent assessments have shown that even with the updated 2030 climate pledges and with the updated um, commitments to net zero, we are still heading towards um, temperature rise of 2.5 degrees, and we know the, the, the disastrous impacts that will have on our um, economies and on our uh, societies. Secondly, um, all three uh, major remitters should engage in supporting and pushing other countries to do the same, to take uh, um, ambitious emission reductions at home. Uh, they can do that in many different ways, through diplomatic means, et cetera, et cetera, but also through the financial support they give to other countries. And the recent statement from the G7 environment ministers has been an important step there. Um, and we need all countries to finish and um, eradicate support activities abroad and instead we need to make sure that we get to the hundred billion um, uh, dollars financial support that has been pledged before and where uh, we still need to make uh, important steps and finally if I may um, I think of course these three countries need uh, to work together to get um, ambitious collective international agreements such as the Paris Agreement and building on that to start up with, of course, um, getting an agreement um, on the Paris rulebook at COP26, but also getting agreements on how to run towards the global stock take that is uh, uh, set for 2023. And that will be a major milestone uh, to see whether we can still stay on track to the 1.5 target. Thank you. Randall, thank you. Irina Kostova, over to you. Uh, thank you, Brian. Uh, I would like to make uh, three main points. Uh, and the first one uh, that this is uh, definitely a momentum for closer cooperation on the climate. And uh, all uh, three top emitters we are discussing today may made climate policy announcements and commitments by 2050 or 2060. And um, 
uh, the key for boosting cooperation could be delinking climate from high politics, uh, not only uh, among uh, the European Union, United States and China, as we are discussing today, but also in a dialogue with other key emitters and uh, other nations. Would it be feasible? Uh, well, of course, there is some window of opportunity exists and uh, key actors, key emitters are catching up in international leadership. The USA uh, rejoined the Paris Agreement, as we all we know. Uh, however, climate itself steadily becomes uh, an issue of hard security, I would uh, speculate. And until now, climate leadership has been perceived mostly uh, as a soft power, by example, leadership by example. And in case uh, climate becomes a proxy of hard security, then uh, what implications it will have? It's the first question. My second point is, in this case, as the European Union, as we know, has a very ambitious plan with objectives mm -hmm. uh, to rearrange its climate diplomacy under the European Green Deal. And uh, the biggest question is what instruments it is going to use, as I like to put it, sticks and carrots, mm -hmm. and what instruments to select and to use in negotiations with other countries. And my third and last point is that of course, uh, pledges to carbon neutrality by uh, the mid-century is made by increasing number of countries. But what is also important is important not to overlook the 2030 targets and uh, maybe accelerated 2030 goals uh, should be in the focus and should be monitored and uh, discussed closely because the further the goals are, the more intentions to divert may arise. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to all our panelists. Uh, you really set the scene for what we uh, can discuss over the next hour or so. Uh, we've already got questions coming in uh, from the audience, so please uh, don't hesitate to send your questions in. We'll introduce those uh, during the conversation as well, not uh, everything just at the end. So if you want to have a, a question put to the panel, uh, please do so as, as soon as possible and not at the last minute. Uh, Jacob, let's start. You know, We have a four-year uh, window here, essentially, with the Biden administration. China's administration is stable, uh, European administration direction is stable, and uh, the United States seems stable for the next four years. And after that, we could end up with another hardline climate Republican uh, administration. So what do you think is possible to achieve in terms of partnership in the next four years? Jacob. Um, th thanks for that question. Well, whether it's uh, four years or, or two years, I think is an open question because I think a lot of what the Biden administration hopes to achieve in terms of rolling out domestic policy, uh, whether it's through um, budget reconciliation um, for domestic purposes or international investment will depend on the cooperation of, of Congress. And as we all know, there's a very a very thin, slim majority at the moment that the, uh, the Biden administration can cooperate with on the on the side of the, the Democratic uh, leadership. Um, but in that in that window, whether it's two or four or, or eight years, I think one of the things that the EU is looking for are, are, are signs that the, the administration is investing in policies and in actions that will endure over time. Um, and so some examples of that would be uh, obviously, the, the use of investment in infrastructure, which will endure over time, uh, the investment in developing standards, uh, product standards, service-related standards that will, will shape the, the industries and the, the markets and the technologies of the future, um, that, and that there, therefore those will endure over time. 
Um, obviously, the way in which they participate in the shaping of multilateral rules in the Paris Agreement context will endure over time, even if there is a change of administration. Uh, and then, of course, we're hoping that they will move as quickly as possible to, to legislate in such a way that will, that will uh, persist um, over time as well. Um, more specifically, we're looking for, obviously, more details as to what the U.S. will do next to achieve um, its relatively bold uh, target of uh, 50 to 52 percent emissions reductions from 2005 levels by, by 2030. Um, and we're, we're looking for more confidence that, as to where they will derive the, the legal authority to, to achieve that. Um, so um, that's essentially the, 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 what, what I would say. Um, I think we, we have a, a good signals, as, as Wendell uh, pointed out, from the G7 process that the, the U.S. is, is committing um, to the, uh, the policies necessary to put it on the right track and, and encouraging others to do so. Uh, and then what we will turn to look from, uh, for, from, from China is similar signals in a, in a G20 context. Um, recognizing that um, not all countries will take the same pathways toward towards net zero. It's those same essential elements of committing to net zero, moving away from fossil fuels, committing to the phase out of coal that we got from the G7 that we hope also to get from. Let me put this to, to Henrika. Uh, you mentioned about the, the, the need to modernize the U.S. Uh, power grid as well, and uh, some, some of the things Jacob outlined there are easy to roll back. Legislation can be overturned with a, a majority uh, in two years or, or, or four years uh, as well. So you know, that's, that's something which is a risk element. Infrastructure is much harder to roll back once the investment is committed, once the, the structures are beginning to be built across the country. Um, that seem, seems as though it will continue uh, to be so as well. How, you're on the U.S. delegation of the European Parliament. How do you see, how do you read the, the, the future potential for cooperation, given that China, you have a form of stability for, for the foreseeable future? So you're asking for China or U.S. potential or both of them? For the U.S., how, how, how much of a stable partner do you see? Yeah. Do, do yeah. you think it's, we need to bind the U.S. into this in a, in a, a, and with any expectation? Or do you think uh, China and the EU have to develop more of a relationship and hope that the, the U.S. comes along? Yeah, I think uh, it is quite promising what we see from the U.S. now. Um, so in his first hours in, in the office, President Biden signed an executive order that rejoined the United States to the Paris Climate Agreement. And that was, of course, an important step. Following that, in April 2021, Biden hosted a day, two-day climate summit um, of 40 world leaders. And at the summit, Biden announced a new target for the U.S. to reduce GHG emissions by 50% to 52% by the year 2030 relative to the level of 2005. So the new target is described as a considerable step forward in the fight against climate change, even though still not enough for reaching the 1.5 degrees targets. And overall, the commitments made at the summit uh, reduced the gap between the government's current pledges and the 1.5 degrees target by 12% to 15%. And if the pledges are accomplished, the emissions by 2030 will fall by 2.6% to 3.7%. Do you think that do you think those those uh, targets would stay on track given that uh, the Trump administration rolled everything back in a hurry? 
Uh, so you, is it necessary to have any expectation of the United States from the Parliament's perspective, do you think? As my dear colleague Jakob Werksmann pointed out already, Biden's climate change agenda will face big obstacles with an evenly divided Senate. So a thin Democratic Senate majority limits the possibility for Biden to achieve sweeping climate change reform to carb carbon emissions. But for the moment, President Biden is moving through executive orders, however significant they don't sub substitute for that administration plans to implement more permanent climate legislation. So what could stand in Biden's way in passing major climate reform on issues such as phasing out coal and oil with clean energy technology is moderate Senate Democrats and Republicans from fossil fuel states who oppose policies they view as harmful to the industries in their home state. But unlike in the European Union, a nationwide price on carbon is off the table for now. A carbon price with tax or carbon trade program would require legislation from the Congress, and such legislation has no chance of passing the current Congress without a price uh, on carbon sector-specific policies must carry the burden of reducing emissions. So we have lots of uh, struggles, but I think in general, uh, the US is about leaving uh, its way um, uh, towards a new century, I think. Um, and, All right. and that's a good step. And Let me ask, uh, thank you. Let me ask Yuki, you talk about major opportunities uh, for uh, COP26, what can come out of that as well? And you spoke about uh, coal production hitting its peak in, in 2013. And, you know, we'll talk about in more detail about what can be done next, but I want to ask about, you know, Jacob mentioned at the beginning, climate, trade and security are the three areas that the uh, United States, Europe and China would hope for cooperation on. You know, trade is tricky. The European Parliament has put a roadblock uh, on the investment agreement at the moment. Security, there's a lack of trust with China at the moment as well. Do you see any substantial uh, obstacles to uh, working with Europe and the United States on climate policy? Um, I think, yes. I, I think the, uh, there are huge potential for the three parties to work together, but climate cooperation has never been easy, right? So we're talking about three parties. So take one party, the United States, right? So we ask the, uh, the people in the Congress and the Senate and about the, between the Republicans and Democrats, see if they can work together, right? You quickly realize it's not always easy. You just uh, uh, pointed out, you know, facing these uh, major issues like climate, trade, and security, and for the three parties, the uh, it's, it's really hard. I mean, the, uh, the 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 thing is, in order for cooperation, we really need to have a mutual understanding and a mutual trust, which we do not really have right now. Right? Just see. The, uh, how many warships right now are the, in the South China Sea and the warships far from the United States, from Europe and from the, uh, from the UK, which is not part of the EU anymore. The, uh, I mean, facing this kind of situations, it, it's really hard. I think the media is really not, it's not really helping, you know, creating lots of issues, issues like human rights. Is human rights a problem? Of course it is. Human rights is a problem in China, in the U.S., in Europe. But you're creating issues, imaginative issues that are non-existent. I mean, you're just creating the obstacles, you know, for the parties who, who should work together. Just uh, working towards the, the Glasgow. I think 
if we can all agree that by mid-century, if we, the, you know, all the parties can agree on the carbon neutrality, I think that would be a major, major achievement, right? The, then uh, I, I don't think it is necessary now to define exactly what does it mean for carbon neutrality, for climate neutrality, for greenhouse gases. I think it's, it's not very uh, productive. But I think in principle, if we can all agree on this climate neutrality or carbon neutrality, I think that that will be a major step forward from from well, the well, Paris Let me ask you this. Is, do you think it's possible to decouple climate from trade and security? Because Europe is not going to let up on its human rights demands and the expectations of China. We can dispute the role of the media and different elements of this as well. Uh, but And trade as well. Trade is going to be intrinsically linked uh, to, to uh, human rights dimensions as well. I read this morning about the expectation in Europe that eventually economics will trump human rights, as it generally does. And uh, so uh, in, in time, perhaps that element will be resolved. But you know, is trust really such a critical element in terms of climate change? If, because there are two ways to look at this. One is that we really believe that the climate uh, is at risk and we all do something to fix it. Or climate policy is a, a power a brokerage. It's, it's a, a weapon uh, to be used by all the different parties for strategic uh, advantage. So uh, you talk about trust. How do you think you gain the trust uh, and for COP26 and working between China, EU and US to make climate action happen faster. Yiki. Well, I, I think there is uh, not necessary to separate all these issues. And uh, in fact, it's the impossible to separate the, those issues in order to cooperate. I think the uh, if you know, all parties just all stick to the facts, right? The, uh, it's okay to have a debate and uh, to have a healthy debate, if we can all stick to the fact, if we can all stick to the, uh, you know, the interest of the people, of the public, and rather than to the interest of the politicians, I think it, things can be, can be worked out. Right now, the, the problem is, you know, some people, the, the politi- politicians, they are working for their own interest, right? They are not really working for the interest of the world, of, 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 the, 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 of the people. I mean, that, that, that is really the problem. And because of that, they're not really looking at the facts, right? They, they're not sticking to the truth. And they're just creating issues. So that, that's, of course, I mean, if you just uh, keep doing that, and there is a, it's just endless, the, the, you know, quarrels and the debates and uh, uh, not, not productive okay, I at think, all. I think there's a, a difference in perspective as to what the facts would be in this. I don't want to get into that today. I want to focus and stay focused on, on climate and the, the possibility for action and what that's actually going to look like. And, and this goes to, to Irina. Irina, you talked about climate as a matter of soft power or hard power. You know, do, do you see the capacity to decouple climate from trade and security? Or uh, like Yiki says, these are intrinsically bound and they can't be separated. Irina. Uh, thank you. Well, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, climate for a long time has been perceived more as a kind of soft power, power by exemplary power. And uh, with the uh, ongoing process when climate issues are becoming mainstreamed in all policies, in all uh, spheres uh, of economies, well, 
yes, there there might be reasonable to expect that climate issues will be mainstreamed also uh, in high politics, in issues of uh, hard security, for example. And uh, also COP26 uh, can be viewed as a further step towards uh, uh, more discussion on uh, climate issues as an indispensable part of uh, broad international politics. And uh, in this regards, of course, uh, whether climate, it's an interesting question whether climate leadership, um, how climate leadership will relate to political leadership to conventional political powers in international politics. And, um, uh, well, yeah, that's it. Okay, thank you. Uh, Zhang Zilang, it's, uh, you talked about capacity building. Part of COP26 is really going to be focused on financing this as well. You know, how, do you, how do you think the, the financial structure for change uh, is going to be worked out in, in COP26? What would your expectations be in, in terms of the cooperation US, EU and China? You know, clearly these are, are big players with huge financial capacity as well. So do you see the opportunity for cooperation on the financial platform that may come out of COP26? Definitely. So I think so there is a huge uh, opportunity for the US and China and the EU to work together to, to how to say, to, to solve uh, the financial uh, the issues uh, for addressing the climate change. So, and uh, I also think right now, so that it, it looks like all other major issues have been solved. So for the implementation of the Paris Agreement, for example, the stock taking, the issue has, has been adopted, and, and also the major parties now has already uh, announced to uh, update uh, their um, NEC. But I think that the, the, the rules, the, the specific rules for the implementation of Article 6, Article 6 is still a major issue. So I think that before the, the COP, uh, COP26, and the China US, uh, China EU, and the three parties should be so, uh, uh, state. Uh, to get to sit together and discuss so these issues together, and to uh, I think the, 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 the agreement of the three parties to be very very important for for make for uh, for make uh, progress on on the, the rules of the implementation of Article Six so uh, during the COP twenty six, and 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 also I know China US and and also. The EU are the key players so in the international financial institutions, such as the World, the World Bank and, and also the Asia Development Bank. So I think that we also need a, a cooperation to, to provide the finance for the, for, for the developing, uh, and for the developing nations. And, and, and also I think, and the US and the China and the US and, and also can work together to introduce let me ask you, in terms of how China invests in climate action, does China invest specifically in climate to reduce uh, its, its uh, emissions, or does it see climate investment as an instrument of trade policy and uh, security policy as well? Uh, how, how does China uh, invest and how does it view its investment uh, in climate policy? So I uh, yeah so I so I think now so, so from in the context of China so if China investment so in the low carbon technology it also means 
so on the the how to say the 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 strength the decrease the strength of the competition industry competition and also it also uh how to say where it's also uh the good for uh, for improve China's energy security so this too because they use more renewable and China can reduce the the import of oil and natural gas from the international the markets I think it's it, it, it's true but I think it's also the same for other nations for the EU for the for the for the US China but for the US it's the same yeah. Okay, and uh, Wendell as well. How do you how do you see this? You know your expectations for COP twenty six. What what do you think is possible uh, in terms of uh, a good outcome? Well, yes, that still has to be seen. Obviously, we are in strange uh, times where the current negotiations are happening or will be happening in a different format, negotiations, the so-called intercessional starting up soon. Um, so I think our expectations for the COP um, will need to be adapted to what is uh, really feasible in the current format. We do hope that we can come to a completion of the Paris Rulebook. I think that will be important, but even more important is actually what will happen outside of the formal negotiation process. And will the COP and the fact that it finally happens bring enough pressure to governments to both increase their contribution in terms of emission reductions, and we still need a lot of new contributions there. But similarly, will it also help us and help the world to increase climate finance commitments? As I said before, there was a commitment to raise $100 billion a year that has not been met yet, partially also because of the absence of the US in that debate. And, and maybe coming back to your previous um, question also, we've seen emission reductions in the US happening even under the Trump administration. I think that process has started and will not be stopped anymore under uh, future Republican administrations if they come. But I think the issue of international outreach and international support is really what has suffered under the Trump administration. And this is where we hope that COP26 can create a new dynamic with sufficient provision of climate finance to developing countries and in particular also to adaptation, not just to um, supporting emission reductions and supporting potential um, uh, corporate interests in developing countries, but really also investing in adaptation and what is called loss and damage to support uh, people on the ground. That will be an important sign. Okay, Wendell, let me, let me ask you uh, also on this as well. You, re the Republican administration should have come back in, in a few years' time. It, it doesn't seem to care that much about climate, even though, as you say, there's still progress being made. It cares more about finance, uh, and most people, I think, would take that view. So how do you incentivize uh, the United States in terms of making money out of climate change? Is that argument still to be made sufficiently that investing in climate is the way to build a future economy, Wendell? Yes, the answer is yes. I mean, I think a lot has been done already and we see that in uh, specific states, um, even Republican uh, governors and Republican uh, state governments really invest in the alternatives because they see the economic benefits. And those economic benefits will only become more and more clear because renewables have become cheaper, etc., etc. So I think that the, the first steps have been set the transition will be unstoppable in the US, even under a re Republican administration. A Republican administration might slow down the transition while actually we need uh, an increase, so that's that would be unfortunate. But I do think that the more people also on the Republican side will see the economic benefits of climate action 
um, the more they will be able to embrace that. Jacob, there's money in climate today. You know, it's, it's, is this the way that each of these partners is able to find a way to work together because it's necessary to invest in climate uh, to, to build the economy of the future? Jacob. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I would agree with, with Wendell that um, the changes are happening. They're happening as a result of policy. They're happening as a result of, of market demand. Um, but I think he would agree with me that they're not happening fast enough. Uh, and so the, the policy signals and, and the market signals basically have to be amplified very, very significantly in order for us to, to, to meet the, the Paris Agreement goals. Um, in the negotiations between now and Glasgow, uh, we, we talk a lot about gaps and need, needing to close gaps. Um, and I think that the finance gap uh, appears in different sizes and shapes. Um, the main one that we're focusing on as, as negotiators at the moment is the, is the gap that, that takes place in terms of billions of dollars. And that's the gap uh, in trying to, to reach the $100 billion goal that developed countries set for themselves um, and that was uh, intended to be met uh, by 2020. Um, Closing that gap will depend upon the U.S. Uh, in part following through on, on their original commitments made in Copenhagen and in Paris. It depends on us improving our ability to use public finance to mobilize private finance because that $100 billion goal is a, is a, is a goal that combines public and private resources. And it depends on um, public actors such as the multilateral development banks and the other international financial institutions improving their portfolios and their commitment to climate action within those portfolios. But the, the, the bigger gaps, um, I think that, that uh, a conversation with, with China and the US needs to look at as well, um, are the transparency gaps. Um, so this commitment to, to reach the 100 billion and to be transparent and accountable about, about that currently applies only to developed countries. It doesn't apply to these very significant climate finance that countries like China provide uh, overseas, including through uh, actions like the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think we have to, to look more closely as to how we can bring um, our conversation into our conversation transparency and accountability around that as well. Uh, and of course, this is just talking about the billion dollar gaps. There is the, the trillion uh, dollar gap, which is the gap between what society internationally will need in order to, to undertake this, this profound transformation uh, and the resources that are currently available. And that means essentially making sure that, that private actors everywhere uh, are, are moving uh, in, in the same direction, uh, as well as public finance everywhere, uh, both um, internationally, but also domestically provided. So that's, that's the big goal. And we're going to have to continue to push on, on that aspect of the conversation as well. Yuki, just to follow on on what uh, Jacob said there as well, because you know, the, the financing, you know, there's a lot of discussion in Brussels in particular uh, about how China invests and, and, and uh, its long-term uh, strategy uh, to, to gain influence, particularly in Africa. So if we're talking about developing nations and financing uh, climate action as well, how do you persuade uh, partners in, in US and EU uh, to, to trust you, as you said? You know, there's, a tr there's a problem with trust when it comes uh, to these investments, or, or does that matter no it does not matter at all because uh the you know you're talking about a hundred dollar hundred billion dollar uh that that is the requirement or uh, actually the uh the, the pledge by the developed countries have nothing to do with china china on the other hand has pledged to uh, contribute its own part 
for to, for a South South cooperation zone, and uh, that that's something between China and other developing developing countries. So uh, China definitely certainly would hope that the uh, you know uh, U.S. and Europe and other developed countries will come uh, uh, forth to uh, contribute more and uh, to increase. But really, since it's a, uh, we're talking about two different conversations here. You know, one, one is the uh, under the Copenhagen Accord, under the the, uh, the Paris Agreement, that the, the kind of responsibility that developed countries uh, pledged themselves, and the other one is a voluntary voluntary action in, in between China and other other developing countries. The uh, I think I, th- I think it's not very helpful to confuse the two issues. Okay. Do you expect greater transparency in the financing for the Belt and Road Initiative, though? Is this something which you think would be a, a good signal to, to your international partners? That uh, tra- I think Belt Road, it, it, it's, it's so easy. It, it is so, so easy, right? The, uh, you know, for the, the green finance we were just, just talking about, the, uh, I think all parties can actually work together to abide the same rules, the same principles. To, to, you know, for instance, not to, to invest in coal-fired power plants, right? Well, that's something that I think that's a very healthy conversation. And uh, then, uh, you know, all parties can agree on principles like that. Then then for, uh, you know, things like AIIB, just join it. And uh, let's just give up together and work together. So uh, then, you know, once you're all inside, then uh, you don't complain about transparency. You choose to stay outside, then you complain about you know opaque system. I think that's uh, uh, is is not not supposed to be the way we we, we should argue. Right? Just it's just the, join it. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's uh, take some questions uh, from the audience. Uh, one from Michelle. Uh, do you think it is possible to decouple economic growth from CO two emissions sufficiently enough to achieve carbon neutrality, uh, Henrika? Do you think we can uh, decouple economic growth? Of, of course, um, th- this is the way uh, we have to go, right? That we uh, decarbonize uh, and, and separate that. Uh, there's no question about it because I think um, there's nothing more um, cost intensive than not taking care of the climate change. And we all know that in the European Union as well as in the US and China. Okay. Uh, Irina, do you, how do you see this? Do you think it's possible? Uh, do you think uh, it's possible to separate these two elements out? Can we accept lower growth in the interest of climate uh, change? Or should we expect that the economy will grow as we invest more in uh, carbon reduction? Irina? Uh, well, that's actually the goal, and this, uh, these are expectations that we may have, that investing in clean solutions in carbon-free economy will generate additional uh, economic growth uh, and uh, will lead to modernization of economies. And, uh, of course, uh, the road uh, may become a bit uh, tricky, and uh, investing in clean economy per se May not result, uh, may not become a precondition for successful development of economies. But what is important is that uh, to understand that nations uh, would understand that 
this would be very counterproductive to cut yourself from the global uh, trends, global economic trends, when the entire global economy is shifting in some parts of the world more intensively, more faster in some parts of the world, uh, uh, a bit more slower. Okay. Uh, but uh, the trend is here and uh, it's important to keep in mind that whether you stay in the game or you are left outside. All right, thank you. Uh, Wendel, maybe you want to try this one from Belinda Sharper. She asks, uh, how do you think the political risk of the EU's suggested carbon border adjustment mechanism could be managed? Thank you. Um, probably rather a question for Jake than for me, but I mean, it's very clear that climate change, if we want to solve it, we will need global cooperation. And um, the question mark, obviously, is whether um, um, a carbon border adjustment mechanism will help that international cooperation or not, um, because it both has this kind of stick and carrot. It, as such, the threat of the CBAM um, has already uh, created debates in countries like uh, Turkey, um, Russia, Australia, etc., etc., about um, increasing their efforts. At the same time, implementing a CBAM might actually be counterproductive in terms of uh, promoting this cooperation between countries. So I think there's definitely a number of issues that um, are very critical. Um, now, how to solve that? I think it's uh, yeah, it's probably more for the Commission to uh, uh, to come up with that proposal. But uh, yeah, I think uh, very clear that it it has all both risks and opportunities. Okay, Jake, uh, do you want a quick word on that? No. <laughs> yeah, happy to. Sorry, no. <laughs> Just reaching for the for the unmute button there. Um, I, I agree with with Wendell that uh, you know all of our policies have to to encourage international cooperation. It's a global goal, uh, a global challenge. But we also have to very specifically address the risk of carbon leakage uh, in a context where the EU is is moving ahead uh, of many of its trading partners and needs to make sure that in cutting our own emissions, we're not inadvertently leading to the increase of emissions elsewhere. So the, uh, the Commission is designing a, a proposal that is WTO consistent uh, and that is Paris consistent and that will make sure that the EU can effectively achieve our commitments domestically without causing leakage uh, internationally. Um, there will be, of course, a very long opportunity between the, there, there was a public consultation period prior to the Commission's proposal and there will be a, a significant opportunity after the proposal is made to engage with, with partners, to explain uh, the, the, the design choices that we've made, uh, to, to take on board their comments um, and, and to design something that uh, we, we think can be in the future a model for other economies that will be facing uh, a similar challenge, um, which we think is inevitable uh, in, a, in a world where the, the level of effort will be asymmetrical uh, for some time to come. Okay, thank you. Uh, Yuki, um, a question from Kenneth Stokes. I hope I understand this correctly. A net zero economy could lead to electrostates. How will that change the geopolitics of the US, China and the EU? I understand this question in terms of those that get uh, to reduce carbon and become uh, more sustainable will have an economic advantage uh, as well. So uh, how do you see this? Getting to uh, uh, an independent state of energy, um, does this change the geopolitical balance? We have changed the geopolitical geopolitical balance when the United States to uh, 
to attain its own uh, independence. Right? We have seen that the uh, when uh, the U.S. turned from a oil importer to a oil exporter, I, I think the same uh, the same thing can, can be said for any other countries. If you can attain, the, you can achieve the uh, energy uh, independence. It definitely, def- definitely, is a good thing for every every country. The, uh, I want to say just a little bit about the, this is, uh, this kind of related to, to international trade. It, it talk about the, the carbon, um, car, carbon adjustment, uh, the carbon border adjustment uh, mechanism, I think, that the EU proposed. This is something I, I really agree that, you know, carbon leakage is a serious problem and needs to be addressed. However, that we need to evaluate the, whether or not CBAM is the right mechanism to, to address the carbon leakage. And uh, even, I mean, furthermore, we need to understand if some people would like to use a CBAM as a weapon to achieve the uh, advantage in trade or bring back the, uh, some of the business back home, I think it's, it's totally understandable. It's totally understandable. But we need to understand whether or not that is going to help the, uh, the carbon reduction, whether or not that will going to help the climate change. You know, the EU has been known for, uh, for, for taking the leadership to achieve the EU ETS. And it took a long time for the EU ETS to actually work. Then uh, for CBAM, I think you, we should not uh, have a very high expectation because it's not going to work for, for a long time. Right before this is, uh, this is it's not going to, uh, it's not going to work for achieving the, the, the climate goal. So I think this is a, this is something is very divisive and uh, it's just making things very complicated and and uh, um, you know really really uh, hard to I mean very bad for uh, develop the the, the 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 mutual trust. Okay, thank you. Uh, just to follow up on this, we have another question from Anna Hubert. Uh, maybe Jacob, you want to respond to this. Uh, Anna says, "How is the EU working with the US and China during the drafting of CBAM, which is scheduled for mid July?" Um, well, I think I, I answered that. Um, we, we, we did a public consultation period. I, it was one of the most um, popular in terms of attracting comments from, from the public, uh, from, from the private sector, uh, from, from other governments. Uh, and we will be uh, consulting you know, very intensively uh, because we know that um, this, this proposal that the Commission will come out with in the middle of July will attract a lot of attention um, and potentially criticism as well. Uh, and so we will be engaging uh, with all of our major uh, trading partners, including the U.S. and China, um, in, in that next step in uh, the movement from a proposal by the Commission to its eventual adoption by um, the co-legislators, the European Parliament and the Council. Okay, thank you. And a question from uh, we have Chen. Uh, Wendell, maybe you want to take this one. Uh, would politicizing, uh, does politicizing solar panels from uh, Xinjiang, sorry if my pronunciation is wrong, uh, by some in the US and EU, does it undermine China's uh, global climate fight? And if so, why? Um, well, it's very clear that uh, there is a strong linkage uh, between uh, all different challenges that we face, including climate change and human rights. So, yes, I would say that um, problems related to how 
the alternative solutions in in this case how solar panels panels are being produced um, do have an impact on the image of uh, of these solutions and so in that sense we strongly believe that if there are human rights violations in solar power production that they need to be tackled um, by by everybody concerned um, and it is very important that the different governments, including in this case the Chinese government, uh, do show um, that uh, the uh, transition that they want to support will be a just and fair transition in, in all ways, so both related to production, but also related to impacts on communities and so on. So that will be important for everybody um, in, this, uh, in this process and all governments. And, in this specific case also for China, but it, the same goes for the EU and the US that also struggle with ensuring that the transition will be a, a just and fair transition. Okay, anyone else want to have a quick comment on that? If not... I'm not uh, a spokesperson for the Chinese government. Sure. Or if the, uh, I, uh, I've been to Xinjiang several times and, uh, and I think I consider myself uh, know the place. I think those who really care about people in Xinjiang, I would invite them to just, you know, go there and take a look with your own eyes. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing is... the uh, possible, can, though. Uh, as, a, you know, as a journalist, it, I don't think I'll be allowed to go and look with my own I mean, eyes, you, frankly. You, you, can, you can contact me, contact me, okay, if you're interested. Let's, let's just make it work. But not right now. Right now, it's a coronavirus, okay? The, uh, but the... Uh, and, but coronavirus should not be the excuse for making rumors and lies. Any action decision based on rumors and lies are not going to help on climate change, on the security issues, on trade. So not going to, to help, you know, all of us, the, any of us. So uh, I think the, the let's uh, do not weaponize, do not politicize the human rights issues. It's not. It's uh, it's not. It's a bad idea. Well, it, it does seem that the burden of evidence now falls upon the Chinese government to prove that these accusations are not uh, true because the, the overwhelming evidence that we see I mean, here in the yeah, West... That's so funny. That's a, that, that argument is, re, is really funny. I mean, why, why the burden of proof is on the Chinese government side? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, don't you think it's funny? I don't, in fact, but uh, we're not going to, I don't want to go down this road too far today. Uh, we can spend the whole, whole program discussing this. What I do want to talk about, let's stay with you, uh, uh, Jiki. The, the lessons learned from the COVID crisis, you, you know, this has been a global response. And there's been a lot of new cooperation between governments globally as well and new mechanisms of cooperation, uh, not just in terms of practical approaches, but in terms of communication as well. Do you think that there are lessons learned from the COVID crisis which will help build trust, as you say, uh, but also uh, that uh, practically there, there is a sense of, of a, a global uh, requirement that we work together because the consequences of not doing so are perhaps better understood now than they were maybe four years ago. I definitely, on this point, I definitely agree with you. I, I, I think big lesson that we learned from this Corona crisis is communication. Right? The, uh, we are not, not doing a very good job communicating with each other and also committing, communicating within, you know, with our, uh, the, uh, within our own countries. So I, I think this is, uh, this is a very fortunate especially seeing, you know, millions of people have died out of this, uh, this tragic, uh, uh, tragic crisis. I mean, these people do not have to die, do not have to die. And uh, we awe them so much. 
The, the, the death rate from climate action or inaction is going to be substantially higher than anything we've seen with COVID. Do the Chinese people have this sense of urgency about uh, climate action? Is, is the consequence of inaction under, understood? Uh, well, I can tell you one news piece I just read today on the Chinese media. You know, some cities now, they are shutting down their power supply. Even, you know, people have to take elevators. Uh, well, people have to take uh, the, the steps, the, uh, you know, uh, shutting down the elevator. You have to climb like the 10th floor. Then uh, the, some cities, now they're actually suspending, you know, for one hour, the uh, break, power uh, uh, break, the, uh, for during the lunch hours. So I can, uh, I challenge everyone, uh, if you find any country that's more serious than actions like this. Uh, by the way, I, I totally disagree with that kind of action. I think people are really taking, ta- taking this very seriously, even though they do not necessarily know what the best way to, to do it. I, I think that, that is something, you know, you and I, you, we need to work together and let's, let's just uh, do not, uh, not only understand why we should have to do this, okay. but how. We can we can work it out together. Okay, Enrique, uh, do you think that uh, COVID has taught us lessons which will be applied to the climate uh, crisis? Well, I I wouldn't say that COVID has impacted the views on climate partnerships directly, but instead made two things more clear. Um, first, in order to tackle a global crisis that affects everyone. We must work together and it's not enough if one country alone, for example, is vaccinated as long as the virus is still out and can mutate. So this means that COVID is only over if all countries are vaccinated and the virus is eradicated. And the same is, of course, true for climate change. We really have to work together. I mean, we have seen before that is really um, um, a challenge not to bundle together all the issues we are interested in, like human rights situation and climate change, for example. We have different views in the parliament and China, the Chinese government as well. But uh, while there's no direct evidence that climate change is influencing the spread of COVID-19, we already do know that climate change alters how we relate to other species on Earth, and that matters to our health and our risk for infections. And uh, we see uh, consequences like deforestation, changing weather conditions in their natural habits, and all these kind of things. And that creates an opportunity for pathogens, uh, of course, like large. So, so we really have to, to, to. We see the chance that we, and, and also the necessity to work together in that regard. And I think uh, we are more sensitive than ever before in this is- on this issue. I was at a conference last year, uh, on uh, two year and a half ago, in uh, Romania on aging healthily, and uh, we asked the, the audience, uh, all uh, healthcare professionals, were they more concerned about dying from antimicrobial resistance or from climate change? Ninety-five uh, percent of the room was more concerned about antimicrobial resistance, and just like you said, Henrika, there is an increased risk of future pandemics because of deforestation and all these other dynamics that, that flow from that. Wendell. Is it time that we look at climate change as a public health policy, uh, urgent, an urgent public health crisis as well, and that the, the lessons of COVID should be applied to, to climate action, Wendell? 
Definitely. I mean, obviously, climate change is everything that we've talked about. It's a security risk, it's a human right risk, and, and it's a health risk. And the, um, the expectations and the assessments of what a temperature rise of 2.5 degrees or more would bring really are devastating. And we need to take much more into account kind of what will happen if we are failing to, uh, to to take sufficient action. And that is not just about polar bears and low-lying islands, etc. But it is really about the population of the countries that we're speaking about. It's the population of China, the population of the European Union, and the population of the United States that will be threatened by the impacts of climate change be there on health, be there economic, um, be there um, on any other on many other issues. So yes, I think there there is definitely a need for increased awareness about that, and this should help building this kind of alliance to uh, to go further than we're currently doing. Zhang, uh, in terms of the future economy and global leadership on climate, do you see these two things as uh, bound together? And is there is there a competitive advantage? in being out in front in terms of, of uh, climate investment, climate action at the moment? Zhang Zilang. So, and, uh, so I think about, so, so, so I think I like this topic, so because we're talking about the future. And uh, so I think that in the future, for, 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 for maintain uh, a sustainable growth of the economy, and there is a new, there is a need of a new investment. So in the, the low carbon technology. So and uh, and and also the it's also very important for the to maintain the the, the, the sustainable growth of the, of the economy. And and also it's also very important for a nation to maintain uh, his industry's competitiveness. So I think this already uh, at least I think in China, so the, the industry leaders. So has already and uh, understand these issues. That's why so now uh, the, now the industry is very uh, cooperative. So after uh, President Xi announced uh, the, the 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 carbon neutrality uh, the goals, uh, so the, so 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 and also I think I also would like to here to see that we should put other debates so and assess and we need to. Focus on the climate change issues because the uh, the climate change is the the the, the common interest of of the, all human beings and also all children. So we we of course so we, there are some issues in other areas, but we should work that really work okay. together to to use this area. Thank you, Jacob. What role does investment in innovation play in in uh, climate policy? Because you know a lot of the conversations we have to stop doing uh, bad things, but we can do a lot of good things in terms of investing in innovation to solve some of the climate problems that we face. How much uh, faith do you have on the uh, our, our innovative capacity to to produce new engineering solutions, uh, new healthcare solutions, which uh, alleviates the risks uh, from uh, climate uh, climate destruction? Well, I think innovation is a, is a big part of the industrial strategies of, of every every Paris party that's that's taking the, the, the challenge and the race to net zero seriously. Um, I think we have to start by recognizing that, that many of the technological solutions are already available to us today. Um, for example, um, the renewable energy uh, um, technologies that we already rely on. And, and the challenge is more about increasing investment there uh, and divesting from our current dependence on, on fossil fuels. 
Um, but we also have to acknowledge that getting to net zero does require things that aren't fully commercializable yet. Uh, and this includes um, the example of, of, of green hydrogen that's often raised. It includes more efficient batteries and storage solutions. And it includes uh, technologies that will help us to more effectively uh, and efficiently capture carbon dioxide from the air and, and store it safely. Uh, because we need, in order to reach 1.5 degrees and not, not uh, to exceed it, to move more and more towards contemplating negative emissions, not just net zero emissions. So that will require um, investment in technology, both from the public and the private sector. Do you think that's a better communications approach to say we have to go, we have to be negative on this, we have to be uh, in the, because the net zero seems, you know, half-hearted, we'll do okay, we'll get there. Uh, should we be more ambitious than this, Jacob, as a, as a communication uh, strategy? I think we will need to be. I think we first need to get um, society's head wrapped around the concept of of, of net zero and, and um, the, the necessity to get there and the benefits that we can experience and will experience when we do get there. Um, but I think uh, those planning longer term uh, need to appreciate that um, the science is telling us that the, uh, the emissions that we've released so far are committing, have already committed us to a path that requires us to think about uh, negative emissions as well. Okay, we're coming close to our time and uh, we have a panel of, of six. So I, I'd ask you just to keep short closing remarks and uh, maximum 60 seconds. If you can hit 30, I'll be your friend forever. So uh, Irina, let's start with you. Uh, 30 seconds uh, for your closing soundbite. Uh, thank you very much, Brian. I have three major points uh, to conclude. So first one, uh, would the United States, China and the European Union be able to institutionalize uh, their climate cooperation? Well, that will be quite challenging. And as we see also during today's discussion, CBAM, ETS linkages, all these issues will require a lot of endless negotiations. And that is why I point to maybe sectoral issues, cooperations on sectoral issues, so where interests of the actors may converge. That can become uh, that success story that uh, could drive the climate agenda further. That would be my uh, guess. And uh, third, even if uh, these three actors do not reach formal cooperation, do not institutionalize their climate cooperation, uh, ongoing shifts in the economy, says in the European Union, these uh, commitments to the Green Deal, these shifts uh, would demonstrate uh, to the rest of the world a clear trend. And as these countries are the biggest markets in the world, then uh, this, uh, they will facilitate uh, the ongoing shift. Uh, also Thank you. Uh, Jacob, closing remark. Um, well, just to say that I, I agree with the comment that Yuchi made earlier that the, the, the commitments by as many as possible to the political goal of reaching net zero would be a significant accomplishment, but would have to add that um, those goals without the policies to achieve them um, aren't, uh, aren't worth a great deal in terms of uh, what the atmosphere sees. And so the next round of conversations that we'll be having with partners is uh, looking at the, the European climate law and, and the efforts that that makes to uh, ensure that that goal isn't just a political goal, but legally binding domestically. And then, of course, the, the Fit for 55 package of policies that we'll be rolling out um, that will include a CBAM proposal, but also many, many ideas about how we're going to be reshaping 
um, the European economy to, to put us on a pathway to net zero, including the revisions uh, to the ETS, to our renewable energy targets, improvements in energy efficiency, electrification of the transport system, uh, improving efficiency in buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And, and really that's where the conversation needs to move next for those of us like the US and China that have made uh, net zero targets. How do you get there? Thank you. Uh, Zhang Zilang. So I think in the first I would like to emphasize that. So I think we should put other things aside and let the US, China, and EU work together to make sure uh, the success of the COP26, the COP I think it's very important. It's very immediate, uh, I'd say, uh, task, immediate things. The second, I think the EU, China, and US can work together to set an environment which will enable so that the investment so in the low carbon technology and some emerging technology such as the CC uh, UI and on uh, and, the and carbon removal technologies and etc. And the third, so I think also the US, the EU, and the China can work together to help other developing nations to address their concerns related to the climate change, uh, including I think um, including provide technical support for those nations. 60 seconds. Anuka, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Okay, Thanks. over to so you. China, China, the EU and US have been the most important parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and not only due to their historical and current emissions, but also to their geopolitical power which has enabled them to encourage or discourage greater mitigation ambition. And the climate ambition and cooperation of the EU, US and China will be fundamental to the success of meeting at least the objectives of the Paris Agreement. And they might pr prioritize different approaches, including using the market subsidy, green stimulus packages and legislation or regulation to accelerate the transition to a low carbon society. But what will count at the very end is to reach net zero. And engagement of the EU with the US and China on climate is necessary because it, it has significant impact of, on uh, European climate safety, of course. However, the reality of the complex EU-China relationship is that the hurdles to cooperation are becoming higher, that's, that's clear. And the Chinese leadership has stated that it's committed to multilateralism and climate cooperation, and now it needs to act accordingly, and the EU needs to hold it accountable. As for the relation with the US, with the change of administration in the US, we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity to design a new transatlantic agenda for global cooperation based on common values, interests, and global influence. And let's take that chance for strong climate cooperation. We have to lead efforts for ambitious global agreements to propose a new global green agenda with a protected climate. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, Chi. over to you. We're facing not one, but two major crises, climate change and the coronavirus pandemic. And these uh, crises are huge reminder, unfortunate reminder of us. The uh, uh, we should work together, and we are all as a community uh, dependent of each other. And uh, we are we did not do very well in the past, and uh, we should not waste any good uh, crisis. And uh, it has been 29 years since the UNFCCC has been proposed. 
And uh, I think right now it, we have a huge opportunity to actually make to work. Let's just work together and uh, really you know, making this carbon neutrality a real, uh, a, a, a real achievement. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wendell, you have 30 seconds. Thank you. Well, we need the US, China and the EU to really work together <clears throat> to create a positive dynamic, a positive dynamic uh, on climate change that shows action on the ground in all three countries are, com are committed and continuing, but also showing the benefits, the social, economic and environmental benefits of the transition. I think that is very important and they need to do that in an inclusive way so that they can bring all other countries on board, be it at the G7, the G20, etc., but most importantly, through the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, as that is the place where all countries are to commit to uh, tackling the climate change challenge. Thank you. Thank you. You're right on the money. Excellent. Thank you to all our panel today for a really concise and informative uh, discussion. Really appreciate uh, the different views you brought uh, today. Uh, thanks to the Mission of China, to the European Union uh, for supporting uh, the discussion today. And uh, to our team here at Euractive, to Malta, Evi, uh, Simona and Matteo. And uh, also to you, our audience, thanks so much for being uh, engaged. We have a lot of questions. We weren't able to bring all of them uh, through today. But uh, you'll be able to follow up. The broadcast will be uh, published online and you can continue to tweet using uh, the hashtag EA debates and also at your active as well. I wish you a good morning. I'm Brian McGuire.